I'm fine, thank you, Harris. Yourself? Good, good. Yeah, it's been a good, been a mental morning, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got there in the end. Eventually, eventually. Um, so, just to kind of start this off, I'd like to if you just explain who you are and what essentially you do. Right, okay. Um, my name is Simon Snowden. I'm an academic based at the University of Liverpool. And I predominantly teach undergraduate students in a business school. And I'm a director of study for one of the biggest programmes in the university, BA in Business Management. Right. Um, so what this came from as well is like I went to your PhD thesis. Um, so what can you just kind of give a brief overview of what that was and what kind of inspired you to do that? Um, the thesis is an examination of um, placement student experience, okay? So uh, 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 many students these days, especially on business courses, um, like to do what we describe as an industrial placement. So they do a four-year degree rather than three. And they'll do their first two years at university, and then they'll go out into industry for a year. And then after that year, they come back to the university to complete their degree, okay? And I've worked quite closely with placement students for um, nearly a decade now. Um, I was um, the person who basically got the placement degree um, in Liverpool off the ground. So I was director of education for quite a few years. I'm sorry, not director of education. I'll say that again. That's what you've got now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was um, director of placements for quite a few years. So I kind of forged the structure for it. I supported the students from it and kind of built it from um, four in the initial year when we did it for students on placement through to around about 120 by the time we left. And we're doing, I think it's about 170 this last year out on placement um, as part of their degree. So, um, so being involved in what those students were going through opened my eyes to many kinds of issues. One was the fact that they were none too pleased when they found out that they had to do academic work whilst they were on placement. So they're doing essentially a full-time job and having to do um, a, a, a module, what is essentially a module, whilst they're out there with assessment. I can imagine that, especially with my work at the minute, and I've got to learn exams and do everything with it, and you think, I've just got away from this. Yeah, yeah. And then they've got to come back. So, so they're doing all that, and... Um, um, so they've got that kind of pull on them in terms of the time of the work they're doing. Now, I wouldn't say the work we give them is too onerous. There's a way of approaching it. Um, but also, um, it was noticing this um, tension between theory and practice and how uh, essentially they very quickly kind of drop the stuff they're learning and kind of treat everything in an ad hoc kind of way. And um, it was... These two kind of tensions that really struck me, mm. and I was very interested in how do we um, one do something in terms of the academic element that is actually of use to them. Mm. So rather than thinking, oh, it's an onerous task, we've got to get this done, just try and get it out of the way, it's some kind of hurdle. It's actually helping them get a grasp um, um, with what is going on while they're on placement and helping them in doing their placement. Uh, and two, trying to understand why people just drop theory 
at the drop of a hat. You know, what, why is there such a negative kind of attitudes towards um, theoretical ideas? And it's, you know, it's not just necessarily placement students. I think this can be in, in the wider business uh, as well. And I think you get that a lot. Research. Because you hear it so frequently is that you go away to do uni and then, then you kind of learn how to do things afterwards. People don't take a lot of theoretical things and try to apply it. Um, even you can ask a lot of people once probably graduates as well that they probably don't think about how to do it and maybe it's a way of kind of changing how you think but that's kind of aspect of theoretical versus practical well transition it is something i really do want to highlight um so what was the kind of way that you kind of approached this then because from someone who's originally read your paper there was two distinct features that you used to kind of do this study so it was the chat which is the cultural activity uh cultural, cultural histor historical, historical activity, activity theory. theory and then there's the aspect of the change lab laboratory which was what you used with the logs um the online learning logs could you just give me a brief introduction of people for people who are listening of what they are and how you use them but um chat we'll just call it activity theory. Yeah. i think it's, it's easier <laughs> um activity theory is it's what we describe as a theoretical lens, okay? So a lens is something that helps bring things into focus, helps you see better, yeah? Mm. So um, activity theory was um, the lens through which I begin to understood the experience of students on placement. And I chose it for a couple of reasons, okay? Mm. Um, there's a number of features in activity theory that I think lended themselves uh, lent them lended <laughs> I'm an academic god so it lent themselves um, to um, the kind of study I was doing so activity theory um, is based upon the idea that the activities we do are the most basic unit analysis we can do it's the only way of really understanding human behaviour Okay, so social activity or societal activity, and um, they make a real distinction between us being a social animal and a societal animal. Um, social animals, you know, dogs, bees, all the rest of it. All that means is hierarchies in some ways. Mm. Societal is trying to make a distinction where actually there's something a bit more, um, and and what it really means is culture. Yeah, so therefore, uh, cultural historical activity theory. Um, so activity theory is all based around this notion of. Um, we're involved in meaningful, or we're involved in activities, social activities, and we get a lot of meaning from those social activities. And the way we do the activities are driven by the meaning we derive. Let's go back to some yeah. of the basic <laughs> elements. So, activity theory basically says humans do not respond directly to a stimulus. Okay? Right. We respond through something called a mediator. So there are other things in our um, consciousness that affect the way in which we see a response and how we act, okay? So, for example, if we think about um, a problem in business, mm -hmm. somebody who is in the operation side of a business will see the problem differently to the accountant in the business, will yeah. see it differently to the marketeer in a business, because those different kind of um, disciplines in a business, those different functions in a business, have a whole set of different mediations, a different way of viewing the world, mm -hmm. okay? 
and, and therefore it shapes the way they respond to a particular problem. Uh, an example I often use to, to really get the idea around this is, is mediation is a mixture of cognitive and physical tools, mm. okay? It's artifacts. Um, so a cognitive tool is theory of some variety, a physical tool, well, a hammer. You know, there's the old saying, um, if the only tool you've got is a hammer, every problem you've got is a nail. Right. You treat everything as a nail. And it kind of captures a bit of it. But a really good example is the clock base, okay? right. time. Is time real or is it something constructed? Well, time is real in one sense. I'm not going to get into an argument with any physicists. <laughs> that could be yet. a whole new other Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we will avoid that. But the clock face is a human construct, okay? Mm. But where does it come from? Why is it 12 hours on the clock face? Why is it 24 hours in a day? Why 60 seconds in a minute? Yeah, yeah. And 60 minutes in an hour? Where does all that come from? Well, um, some of the speculation around all this dates from um, sort of really ancient societies, okay, in the Middle East, and it's about counting mechanisms. So uh, our counting um, is base 10 in mm. the West, and because it seems to have always been that, it seems the most natural way of counting. Where does base 10 come from, Harris? Yeah, who knows? With our fingers. Because oh, we're right, at 10 okay. digits. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's that kind of thing. Well... It looks as though, uh, in a number of ancient societies, the um, counting base was 12. Right. So it's, where does that come from? They have an extra finger in each hand. <laughs> it's, well, what it is, it's still to do with the hand. Right. Okay. And it's to do with our four fingers. So if, if you pull up your right hand and you've yeah. got four fingers, what have you also got on each finger? You've got three different positions. So the tip. Right. The middle between the two knuckles and then the bottom. And then if you count those off, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Right. So there's that speculation that people were counting using their thumb on those three segments in the finger, four fingers, three segments, there's your 12. The thumb was an actual tool instead of an object. But the whole hand yeah. is the tool for counting. Yeah. So the hand creates, um, the hand, the physical tool, creates a cognitive tool, a counting system. Now, what's the other hand doing while this is counting off 12s? Well, it's counting off the number of 12s. Right. And what's five 12s? Uh, 60. 60. Yeah, yeah. And we start to get the notion of 60 minutes, 60 seconds, yeah? Right. And the 12. But why is it 24 hours? 12 times by 2 is 24. But where does the 2 come from? Well, it tends about to be... day and night. Pardon? With the aspect of day and night, then? Yeah, bang, Harris. I knew you deserved that degree you got. So I didn't get a two-one for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in a lot of ancient societies, day and night are seen as two different realms. So 12 hours in each, okay? Now, we're used to an hour being of a specified length, yeah? Mm -hmm. They're all the same length. Every hour is the same length. But in these ancient societies, it wasn't. Because 12 was simply divided between the hours of daylight and the hours of nighttime. Mm. And as we know, as the Earth revolves around the sun, those lengths of day and night change, so the lengths of hours would change over the course of a year, depending if, uh, um, between night and day. Okay, So there is an example of mediation. Mm. The physical tool that is the hand and how we use it to count, um, so the physical tool that is the hand mediates how we develop a counting system. Okay. Right. And that counting system then in turn mediates another cognitive tool to understand time along with 
a view of the world that is night and day are two separate realms. So that's mediation. It's a really good example of mediation and how humans use both cognitive and physical tools to try and understand the world in which they're in and to develop behaviours, to develop the ability to intervene in the world. Mm. Okay? So that mediation is really kind of critical in there. Okay? Um, but obviously, you're not mediated by one thing. Mediated by lots of different things. The whole okay. nurture element is that the way you get brought up, and there's so many different influences, and that's essentially exactly. such a big influence on how you become as a media. Exactly, exactly. So all of our responses are a mixture of all those mediations. Now, all those mediations coming together, all those um, different ideas, influences, thoughts, and all that lot, they create conflicts. Okay, they create what activity call a contradictions. Okay, structural tensions, if you like. Mm. Now, um, we live. Uh, the, the argument is, is that we live permanently in this state of structural tension, in a chronic state of structural tension. You'll know it yourself from the workplace. You're asked to do one thing by one boss, but your customer wants to do something else, and the higher boss wants to do something else yet again. And it's like, well, how do I balance this out? And on the whole, we find ways of balancing them. Mm. But on some occasions... Those contradictions move from a state of being chronic to an acute state. In other words, they have to be resolved in some way. Um, you can't continue the way they are. You have to find a resolution. Okay? And in activity theory, they talk about having critical encounters. These critical encounters are situations that generate this acute status uh, for contradictions. And then having to reconceptualize what you're doing, think about it in different ways, um, and take what they call volitional actions, your own agency, if you like, um, to be able to resolve that. And this is quite important because of what I said before with the students, that um, one, they had a structural tension in terms of they had a job to do, and they had academic work to do. Mm. These two things, these were fighting over their time. And also, this contradiction between theory and practice. They'd be learning all this stuff in class, but it didn't seem appropriate or applicable in the workplace. And mm. so they were kind of dropping it. So both of these things seem to echo my experiences, and activity theory seemed to provide a way of beginning to understand it. Um, and furthermore, the change lab is a particular tool used in activity theory. Mm. So it provided me with a method to begin to explore, one, what was causing a lot of these problems, and two, how we can begin to resolve them and help students resolve them. So the Change Lab is a technique for managing change in organisations, um, and it comes out of um, a guy called Engerstrom and, and um, a university in Finland um, and essentially what it is is having a number of interventions so it's an interventionist approach um, the researcher facilitator um, is a little bit like an agitator trying to stir things up a bit and um, they have a set of expansive what they call expansive learning actions or phases questioning, analysing, modelling, consolidating implementation. So different phases you move through, different process, a process of moving through these phases, if you like. Um, but also something called the double simulation. Right. Okay? And the double simulation is really important. So the double simulation is by, about a primary simulation and a secondary simulation. The primary simulation is about drawing out 
the assumptions and basic ideas of a situation and why it is the way it is. Okay, mm. so you'll have um, a couple of, um, uh, of these expansive learning phases called questioning and analysis, and it's really trying to work out where um, we have come from to get where we are, where we've got this problem. Mm. Okay, that we want to make a change in an organisation. And so it's allowing people to begin to develop their own artifacts, those tools to understand yeah. it. What's the history of how we got here? Um, how do various parts of an organisation mix to generate this? What are their motivations around what they're doing? You're trying to get all this information out, okay? And get them, we're going, yeah, that's what it is. The secondary stimulation, key part of double stimulation in many ways, is then to take that and turn it on its head in some ways. Okay, yeah. to get them thinking very differently about it. So in the students' example, what I was doing with the placement students, what we began to notice as we was drawing the base assumptions out is very much this case of theories for assessment. And it's yeah. quite clear from a lot of the statements the students were making about um, what is the purpose of um, education. It's just to do assessment. It's just to get this qualification. Um, it's to follow this syllabus. It's, it's a very certain environment. They know the form, the questions are coming in, answers are in the back of the book, they know the exact syllabus that it's going to be. It's that um, structure element as well. It's like it, it's something that you could probably never apply to the workplace is the fact that some things, some students use is the fact that, right, what happened, and I use this as well, what was on the past exam papers and can they therefore predict what is going to happen? Exactly. Exactly. It's exactly that sort of thing. Whereas business, as you know, is, well, there is a lot of certainty in it. You've got a fairly good idea what you're going to be doing in a day. But there's a hell of a lot of curveballs as well. There's a hell of a lot of uncertainty that goes on. A lot of shocks in the day you can get. Okay. So, um, so the students have this notion that, you know, this attitude towards education of it being very structured and all these kind of ideas like that. And what we were trying to do was begin to upset the apple cart a bit mm. and, and to begin to get them to feel theory, not something so much as a highly structured tool, but a starting point to explore issues. More importantly for me, is not so much the learning of theory, but is how to uh, produce theory yourselves. I mean, one of the big problems with education is it turns people into consumers of knowledge rather than producers of knowledge. And I think once you get into a business environment, you're a producer. You're not a consumer. You're creating what's mm. going on in those businesses. And for me, the role of HE is really to help generate producers of knowledge. I really like that point that you're saying, because I remember, I can't remember who was saying, uh, but I remember watching something he was saying, uh, and I think he was, it might have been a comedian, he was saying, like, I am an idiot because at the end of the day, and he's quite known for being very well-spoken and demonstrates a lot of facts. Everything I've ever learned is something that's I've, recalled from what someone else has said agreed with and then repeated i've just gathered all this knowledge and then that has contributed to my viewpoints i have never gone out and thought and created a viewpoint or created something the methodologically thought of something and then made it and that he was saying that's the thing to those that who are in intelligence wise are up there and then the rest of us see i don't think it's quite i think we're all kind of a bit of a mix it's a yeah. spectrum in some ways i think um I, 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 
the amount of university students who have gone through my hands over the many years, there are some of my look and go, oh my God, you are much <laughs> better than I am and ever will be. You know, that, that you, you are dealing with some incredibly bright individuals, but even those who are incredibly bright, bright you know, mm. they're quite capable of being these kind of producers of knowledge as well. So, so getting back to that secondary stimulation is trying to turn that on the head. What, one of the tools I actually used in this um, was I provided the students at one point and one of the things they needed to reflect on with a web page to do with musical theory. I then provided them with the musical score for the song Something by the Beatles, George Harrison, uh, one of the greatest songwriters ever, I personally believe. Massively underrated. Yes, and Something is just a superb um, tune. Um, so they had this um, web page on musical theory, they had the musical score for Something, and they provided them with two YouTube videos of different performances of Something. Classic Beatles one, and then the one that was done in the tribute conference, um, tribute performance for George Harrison. Mm. And they're very, very different. And I asked them to reflect on what does this say about theory. And all of a sudden, you can see the students beginning to go, ah, context. Context really matters. Mm. Just because you have a theory doesn't mean, you know, in essence, um, the song, um, the musical score comes out of uh, musical th um, theory, but we've got millions of tunes. Mm. Yeah, and they've all come out of the same theories. It's just different people applying it in different ways. And even something which is theoretically should produce the same sound every time, that musical score, well, actually, once it gets into the hands of performers, you can get very different performances coming out as they apply it. And suddenly students begin to think about theory not as something you strictly apply, but as a tool to explore and maybe a starting point for application, but something they need to shape themselves. It's trying to encourage them not to be slaves to theory, Okay, because mm. I'm not. I'm quite critical of a lot of theory. Mm. But is is you know we often talk uh, about in um, higher education at university. We often talk about critical thinking, and it's getting their minds into that space of critical thinking to not just accept theory, but to think about what its flaws are, where its limitations are, how it applies to a particular context. And in that double stimulation, you begin to see the students flipping in terms of. Um, how they approach theory and how um, they begin to see it much more clearly in the world around them and begin to be able, more, most importantly in my mind, to be able to dissect it and to critique it mm. and to adapt it and change it to suit themselves. They became producers of knowledge. They were no longer just consuming. And it's it's that huge step. And that, that's kind of why I was ch cho chose the Change Laboratory because it was all about... Um, allowing people to reorient um, an understanding of a situation for themselves. And it's, it's, a, it's about re-enabling their agency. In essence, when we talk about agencies, people's ability to apply free will, if you like, to be mm -hmm. able to do what they want to do. Now, we don't have perfect free will. We live in the structures of society. Um, um, but education had begun to rob these students of their agency. All they wanted to know is, well, what's the answer? What's the mm. structure of the answer? How's this going to be? You know, a classic thing I sometimes say is A-level often says there's no such thing as the right answer, but here's the eight right answers you must have on the exam paper. Uh, and so students are permanently looking for that. And that, that's them handing their agency over, going, you tell me what to do. 
And that's not what we want in a business environment. Mm. We want people who are going to work out things for themselves. And so we want to re-enable that agency. And that's what this change laboratory is about, is about um, giving them a space in which to begin to explore the problem and re-engage um, their own um, reasoning, their own ability to take a bit more control. Um, and I found um, both that, that theoretical lens of activity theory and the method of the change laboratory were very helpful in constructing um, a set of activities the students could do while they're on placement and giving them space to reflect and begin to change and um, to begin to get, I think, a, a better understanding of the relation between theory and practice. I think it's a very good way how you approached it. I think, especially with the relevance of the George Harrison bit and the Beatles, um, with the aspect of if you're going to send some students away all across different parts of the country and you're going to say, right, okay, try to apply, I'm not saying this, but like, try to, just for example, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how you're going to apply it to the thing and see if it will work. It's, that's just, a student's not going to take that and just think, right, okay, I'm going to try and to apply it there. No, it's difficult for, when you've grown up in all your life doing one thing and then someone says, right, now do it like this. It seems with the methods that you use there, you helped create the links and they've all had that, ah, right, okay, now that makes sense. And the aha moments. Yeah, the aha, the, the ding. Um, the light bulb going off, that's what I meant to say. Um, oh, I like the aha moments. Yeah. Because <laughs> ah, you, you feel you feel that switch going on in your head, yeah. don't you, as you begin to sort of click what, what's going on. I think you're right, when you talk about all your life, 13, 14 years, students will have spent in education being trained to do things in certain ways. Mm. Um, you know, you went to Liverpool where I taught, and Liverpool's a red brick university, one of the so-called elite universities. And, you know, these students coming there are, you know, A-star A -star students, that sort of thing. And um, they've been told they're good students the whole of their life. And then they come to us, and in the first couple of semesters, they're getting 40% or... 50%, suddenly they're not good students anymore because the game has just mm. changed on them. And it takes them a long time to, to begin to understand the game. 13 or 14 years of owning and practicing a particular kind of skill to pass assessment. Not a particularly useful skill, if you ask me, mm. but they've practiced and honed it to absolute perfection. And then they come to university and we're asking them to think critically, something they've not really necessarily done much before. And it throws them quite a lot. And it's trying to find ways in which to open this up to them. And through the placement and through that boundary situation students find themselves in, they're in the workplace, they're doing a professional piece of work, but they're still students. It's, it's a really nice position to begin to open up mm. those possibilities. I do really get with that aspect of... The, the whole top dog thing because I went I came into Liverpool University in my second year and I went to a non-red brick for my first one and I remember coming in and with the first one that I went to there was a lot smaller classes there was kind of more time interacting with your lecturer I remember coming in thinking right this is a bit more serious and I've quickly adapted for, fair enough but I do get that I mean when you come straight from the aspect of some people as well, because they have school and then they stay within school for the college. So nothing really changes. And they leave with A stars, A's or whatever it is. And then they come in and then they've been taught, like you said, all this time to write, okay, if you do this, you'll pass by teachers who need them to pass because it reflects from them. So they will do everything that they can to make sure that they pass that certain exam. They come in and they're not 
suddenly surrounded by everything that they know that will help them pass just to great to, to an exam and for someone says to you right okay this means this and then you take the critical aspects of it but why does it mean this and it i think when people kind of look back sometimes people may forget of people being in, of students in that position of how you are it's easy to look back and think all oh, right okay that's that's fine this is that but when you're in that position it's it's really daunting because you're trying to essentially change the way of how you're thinking it, it's, it's a weird one, university, because it's, it's the vast majority of university courses are not really vocational. Okay, some are. Um, you know, if you're going to do medicine, you're more than likely going to be a doctor. If you're doing nursing, you're more than likely going to end up a nurse. But most university courses are not um, vocational as such. Otherwise, we'd have millions of English teachers. They're on, you know, people who study an English degree don't necessarily go in and teach English after it. They can go into marketing, they can go into all the kinds of areas of um, business management, all kinds of things like that. Um, you know, if you want to go into business, you don't have to do a business studies um, program or business management. You can study anything. A degree, in many ways, is about how you think, the process mm. of thinking. Um, that critical thinking as we describe it and the subject knowledge is irrelevant you know if you are studying business you'd hope you'd learn something about the techniques of operations management at some point what is lean what is kaizen all those kinds of ideas bring me back <laughs> um, but um it, that other aspect, that learning how to think, is quite critical to it. Okay, and I, I tend to break it down for a lot of my students into um, rather than read, remember, recall, which is what they were doing pre HE. What they're coming to do here is collect, analyze, interpret, communicate. Okay, so politicians often go, "Oh, what's the point in doing essays? You'll never do essays again in your life." Well, you're right in the sense of you won't write in that formal communication tone, mm. okay? Um, but an essay is, is just that. It's a communication, okay? It's a particular academic form of communication. It's fairly straightforward form of communication once you begin to understand um, the formula for it, if you like. But actually, to be able to write an essay, you've got to collect data that's appropriate to the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. You've got to apply the appropriate analytic techniques to that data. You've then got to interpret the findings from that analysis. Okay, you develop your recommendations, say, for an organization. And then you could have all kinds of forms of communication. It could be an essay, it could be a report. Mm. The reports are for all kinds of different audiences. It could be a presentation, mm. yeah? So to say um, they'll never write an essay, well, yeah, that's true. It's, it's um, you know, it's quite obvious they won't. But actually, all the things they'll have to do to produce a good essay, to develop a strong argument, a line of reasoning, that collect, analyze, interpret, well, actually, they'll do that whether they're doing a report, whether they're doing a piece of work in the workplace. What that highlights to me is essentially what you're describing there is emails. The, we've all, if, if you worked in a room, you all, you've been around people that don't really write emails as informative as they should be or they don't flow well when you get a good email and you get it all in one you're like right thank you that sums it all like up and them skills that you're saying there we're saying alright well you, you had, you're not going to write essays them skills that you're learning from the essays is the fact that you can put them in 
to skip to well actions like writing emails effectively and then the informing other members or other well external businesses whoever you're communicating with effectively yeah yeah absolutely and, and the best students tend to get this again tend to appreciate actually um, when we're writing uh, an essay we're learning to communicate with a particular audience when we're giving a report we have to think about who the audience is for that report rather than just trying to do an essay with a few headings in it because um, it needs a different tone it needs to be sent a different way just imagine if you're doing a report for senior managers and you write like an essay. I can just imagine a senior manager sitting there going, get to the point, just get to the point. What's the point? So best students, I think, do tend to begin to appreciate that the way they view things is beginning to change, okay? And they appreciate the importance of being able to collect um, uh, data in an appropriate manner, analyze it in an appropriate manner, and develop their interpretation of that and then communicate it. Many students, because they've been through 14 years and education is purely about um, sort of saying what the greats have said before and getting the right answer, they don't necessarily click it, unfortunately, mm. um, because we, we do leave you to explore it more. But in, in this placement, I wanted to look at a mode of teaching. Um, and it's kind of Socratic in a way. Mm. You're not there yourself physically questioning them all the time and sort of um, drilling um, into what they're thinking about, but you're giving them a space to reflect on some um, basic ideas that you've set for them. All right. Yeah, that makes it. Yeah. So with the... It's a very good introduction of everything. Um, what were the kind of key things that you found then after doing everything? For me, we kind of touched on them a, a few times. So the mediator was a big factor? Yeah. So, well, it, it's if we think about education, or let's, if we think about theory in terms of mediation, mm. yeah? So theory... Um, stands between the stimulus and our response. So we're given a problem in the workplace that we need to solve, yeah? Or uh, we're asked a question and we need to provide an answer for it, okay? Theory can play a role of mediating how we develop the response. Mm. But the reality is the students weren't doing this, yeah? Mm. Um, they were kind of, they were essentially reinventing theory for themselves in many ways, but I'll come back to this yeah. later. What had happened is that the theory taught in education has been misdirected as a mediator. So if you think of mediate as a vector, yeah, mm. so having strength and direction, okay? So, um, you know, we were talking about influences in our lives as we grow up and they shape the way we think. Some things are a stronger influence than others, mm. yeah? So that's the strength of it. Well, in this case, it wasn't necessarily that um, theory has no strength. It played an important role, and they saw it as important for their exams, but its direction was misdirected. It mm. wasn't seen as a tool to explore the world and intervene in the world. It was simply a tool for exams, you know, setting mnemonics, for example, for an exam. That's all it was. It was of no use. So when the students in placement were coming to begin to um, sort of um, their professional practice, Rather than using theory to help mediate, it was nowhere in sight. It was just kind of ditched. Now, that doesn't mean they don't use theory. We, we, bizarrely, 
all animals could be could be talked about as theory machines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're really pattern matchers. That's what we are as animals. We look for patterns, and um, we use those patterns to try and do predictions in the world, to intervene in the world. You, you could talk about a tree shrew being a theoretical specialist in bush rustles. So, you know, it's wandering around the forest floor or climbing the trees, whatever they do, and it's hearing all these rustles in bushes. And it knows the difference between a rustle, that is, or a pattern of rustles in the bush, that is something it can eat, or something that can eat it. Mm. And if it gets it wrong, it can be quite disastrous, okay? So it has a set of theories, it has a set of patterns. And that's what we as humans do. We, we look for patterns all the time. You know, uh, once we're past sort of primary school age, we don't really read anymore. We pattern match, mm. yeah? Um, we, you know, we do read as we're learning at uh, cats, at uh, bats and all that, and that kind of sort of sounding out as we're reading. But once we get to a certain age and we're scanning through, we're really just seeing a pattern of symbols and they're connected to an association yeah. of ideas. So it's the patterns that matter. But there's an interesting um, experiment, um, I, remember, I think it came out of Cambridge, where they kept the first and last letter of a word the same, but then jumbled all the other letters. And they made sentences like that. And you could still read the sentence. Because it was just a pattern of symbols together that clicked with an association. If, you didn't anyone's, need to read it. if anyone's ever had to read some, especially with kind of, I've got someone with the older generation, and they don't like to work with computers, so they write a letter down and they've got really bad handwriting. It's the exact thing that you've got to use there because you're like, what? What's that? <laughs> and then you're, what I after is like, I don't know that word, but if I read the rest of the sentence, then maybe I'll be able to understand that word. It, 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 exactly, it's the kind of thing. It's that that pattern matching ability that we've got, you know. And that pa and just because we see patterns doesn't mean there's really a pattern there. Mm. It's just a pattern we discern. So classic superstitions, you know, um, football fans wearing the same underwear at every <laughs> single match and never having washed them because um, they scored a goal in the FA Cup in 1983. You know, they see they identify these patterns and they kind of live on as if there's some kind of construct that's real. And that, in essence, is what theory is. But mm. in academia, we become very rigorous about it. We test and test and test. And we try to understand the underlying assumptions. We test those underlying assumptions. And we have massive discussion debate around this. Um, and that's what we're trying to teach our students. So what was happening is they're given a set of theories that have been through these kind of rigorous processes and they ditch them and they start doing their own little patterns, or, or they may be taking things off of their colleagues around them that have been through the same process. But they're not necessarily treating with the same rigour. So they can enter into a, a, a kind of space between superstition and theory in many ways. And so one of the key findings is that this uh, misdirection of the theory as a mediator actually begins to disarm um, students in the face of trying to solve problems, okay? So that was a key thing. And education in the conceptions of the student, in the perceptions of the students, um, was probably what was driving this. Because, again, as we mentioned before, to them it was all about a syllabus, it was all about assessment. It wasn't learning theory for any reason other than to pass an assessment. And so that seemed to have drive that misdirection. And in misdirecting it, it actually begins to disarm us 
we, we seem to have lost a lot of the things we learned in the Enlightenment, mm. you know, the scientific method in many ways, that rigor, mm. that systematic testing. And, you know, you have to say, once you're dealing with social theories, um, they're flawed, mm. okay? It's not they're wrong, they're flawed. They have their limitations. You imagine um, a lot of discussion around theory in business. You know, how many businesses can an individual researcher deal with in their academic lifetime? 10, 20, mm. 100? How many businesses are there in Europe? Millions. And then you're talking about sectors as well. If you're just talking, there's so many sectors that have, you could just do manufacturing service, which you couldn't go down to the nitty gritty, even if you're trying to do like subsectors, you could didn't have the time to do it. And it's so difficult. I think one of the, the aspects of trying to implement theory is just, it, it's disregarded by so many, I think. And I think there's, the aspect of people grow up and I think one of the responses that we I found within the research paper that you did was there was a couple of was like I just I'm tired when I get home from work I just want to go in and do work and and people from so many people relate to that you know we, we go in we want to do the job done and maybe you don't have to the, the energy or the time or anything just think right okay what can I do to apply this theory to improve something and the best kind of aspect i think of this is that why don't people because the majority of students they have part-time jobs i have part-time jobs throughout the world you know the majority of friends i have had part-time jobs and this placement here that we had that you had was to try and kind of apply theory and to get the work experience but why aren't generally students applying that theory of aspect of maybe inventory management to their part-time jobs to kind of improve certain aspects I don't know. You exactly. Know, them. Exactly. Well, this is that thing, isn't it? It's. It's, it's, it's also remembering. You know, uh, when you're young, there's a lot of other things going on <laughs> in your life. There are a lot of other priorities. And I tell you now, applying theory in your part-time job, I'm sure, is not one of them. Uh, was I any different when I was that age? Of course, I wasn't. No. You know, there, there are very many pretty individuals passing by <laughs> in life, and my they take priority, or they did in my time, over and above um, sort of a, a, applying what I was learning at university and those social interactions that were going on. That's just part of being young in some yeah. ways. It's the job of the educator to actually put in place um, sets of um things that people can do that begin to inspire them around this begin to challenge their thinking begin to open their minds up and you know we can't do it for everyone some people just are not engaged and are intentionally not engaged but for those who are um we do have to think about different modes of teaching such as this change laboratory such as this double stimulation and um, that allows them to explore it so um I, I, for me one of the big key things was kind of going oh theories of no use to them <laughs> um, because they can't see that it's of use to them. Mm. Uh, and then the next big thing was realising how um, you can use something like the double stimulation um, uh, and the change laboratory to draw out assumptions and then, ch then throw these assumptions on their head. What I call putting the cognitive cat amongst the pigeons um, to startle them out of their ways of thinking. And... You know, if you've had 13, 14 years of being trained to think in a particular way around education, and then we've got three, maybe four years to change it, 
That's not easy. Yeah, it's not That's a good ratio, really is it? Yeah. That, you know, these are, you know, we talk about how difficult it is to break habits. Um, you know, uh, you've built huge habits in learning that is to do with consumption. And we're trying to turn you into producers. Mm. Um, and so um, in amongst all that difficulty is us trying different modes out to hit individual students to get them to make those changes. And I think they were the key things is mm. actually theory doesn't appear to be of use to students. And that the reason is, is not because theory isn't useful, but because theory, they don't see it being of use. They've been trained not to see it of use. And we need to throw them out of it. And actually something like the change laboratory, um, this double stimulation can be part of our armory in which to get them to rethink its, its use. But it's not just that change laboratory. I think that the position they were in, that boundary position of being both a student, therefore having to do the assessment, and being in a workplace and having to do work in a professional environment, brought those two worlds into close collision, generating a lot of the the structural tensions that they were needing to resolve. There was a necessity for them to do it, um, which allowed for the double stimulation to mm. take effect and the change laboratory to work. So they were the key things for me, I think. See, one point I kind of want to highlight, it was kind of the main inspiration for me wanting to do this with you. I remember it was a while ago when we met and you said, when you're speaking about this research, it was the fact that you enjoy to learn theory to understand while you see a lot of students who, like we said, what we've been speaking about this past conversation is the fact that they learn just to be, pass exams and they become exam machines. And do you think that's down to the individual of their approach towards theory? Or do you think what we've been talking about, how we've been taught at school, do you think it's a generational difference? Or do you think it's a mix of both? I, I, I just, I don't think it's any specific, specific to do with the generation. Mm. Um... Because, you know, I look back when I was that age and I think I went through a very similar process. Mm. Um, I think, again, we mentioned before, especially when you're young, that there's so much going on that life is so fresh. You go away to university. It's probably the first time you've lived alone uh, yeah. or, or lived away from your parents, away from home. Um, you, so you're learning how to do that. You're learning how to cook. You're, you're probably not learning how to cook. You're, <laughs> um, you know, all of a sudden you're away from all the friends you were with and you're trying to make new friends. Um, that there's a state we always say, you know, the, the friends you make in the first week, um, sorry, I'll say again, the first semester is spent trying to get rid of the friends you made in the first week at university, you know, because you, you're desperately trying to cling on to anyone. So th there's so much going on in that period of your life that people can become quite instrumental in what they do, mm. okay? Um, what I mean by that is they are very strategic in what they pick and choose. And they will carry out actions. There's this, this economy of effort being taken place to try and get over the next hurdle. And doing a degree is just another hurdle. You need that 2-1 or that first to get a good job, for example, gets fixated mm -hmm. in their head. So what do I need to do that? And there are only certain occasions in which this tends to break. Placement can be one of them. Mm where the structural tensions become acute, as was mentioned before. Another one is interest. 
just think about sort of the modules you did that you just were interested in that just grabbed your imagination and all of a sudden you were looking wider and thinking about things and you were having your brain scrambled by a particular lecture and it it can be you know it'll be a different situation for all students they are the kind of small cracks in which we as educators can try to funnel some of this learning in but i just think it's a, it's a natural process uh, of being young there's a that for many there can be a natural arrogance of being young thinking you know everything and all what do all the generations know and you know that's no different from when i was your uh, mm. sort of 18 19 to the 18 19 20 year olds of today so i don't think it's um it, it's anything new um and um i, I don't think it's going to disappear overnight <laughs> I, I think edu education, as it stands at the moment, appears to exacerbate it, um, especially pre-HE. And we have a lot of pressures on us in HE now to, to follow very similar things. You know, that this, these, the, the need to satisfy students, and if students have been highly instrumental, the need to sort of satisfy that instrumentalism. And it can be quite a fight for us mm. to try and still produce an environment in which students are challenged to think about their assumptions and the way they approach problems and to think about how they can use theory to one understand the world but two to intervene within it as well um and i, I think we don't always succeed in that mm. do you think there's an aspect of where some people try to apply theory to things that are very very difficult to be theoretically taught or can't be theoretically taught in the aspect of the example i'm thinking of is leadership i've had a leadership to be tried to talk theoretically to me which i find a very struggle thing to do that can't be done practically i think that's something that's either nurtured that you people grow up to be leaders or it's something that you learn from the environment around you from real life experiences um, in the context of leadership i just i found it very difficult to understand what i was learning off a powerpoint or from like a book and then how it can be applied effectively i think with nearly everything in life theory alone will not teach you it mm. you have to at some point apply it mm. okay you have to try it out these different things but as I said before, as pattern matching creatures, theories, how we simplify. The world is a, a very messy and complex environment, yeah? Hmm. It's a, a little bit like um, painting DNA, a Jackson Pollock painting of DNA. So messy as in the Jackson Pollock state, complex as in all those interactions um, within, within the chromosomes leading to the expression of proteins over time that lead to... Um, sort of certain physical traits um, in individuals and even potentially um, uh, can lead to sort of personality traits, things like that. We as humans can't take all that information in. Mm. No animal can. So we have to simplify. Theory is part of that simplification process, that finding simple patterns in relationships between things. So we do it. It's, it's a normal, natural part. So for me, absolutely everything can be theorized around okay um but for all individuals i don't think it's enough to read a book and go ah i get it now you've got to do it mm -hmm. um, and in doing it 
You can't just do it and simply get it. You then have to think and reflect upon, well, I did this. How did it fit with what the theory was saying? Yeah. And I, I often talk um, with students, uh, especially doing dissertations, is that to truly understand the theory and its flaws, you first of all need to apply it rigidly. Mm. And in the rigid application, you begin to see where it does and doesn't work under certain conditions and then you can begin to adapt it yeah make changes to it to fit the circumstances and the situation that you specifically find yourself in so i think even something like leadership can be sort of theorized about and it can help people understand it will it make them good leaders no not at all even through practice and reflecting will it necessarily make them good leaders no I'm not mm. convinced. Okay. So I think there's, there's a number of questions here. It's not simply um, does theory make us good leaders? It's can you theorize about leadership? Yeah, of course you can. Mm. Theorize about anything at the end of the day. Um, but does understanding those theories and being able to sort of talk about them in an essay, will that make you a good leader? Absolutely not. Yeah. So is it the, in the context of leadership, is it, what you learn there is it that effective in because essentially there's some areas where theory is more impactful in how you can do and then there's some aspects of where theory is just doesn't seem like it's that potentially particularly useful which is why i'm using the aspect of leadership you see so many people bring bring out like leadership books and all this and then there's some things that are in the aspect of if you learn about inventory management it seems there there's more theoretical concepts that can be applied more strategically and more relevant do you understand the I, 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 I get I get what you, you, you're getting to there, there is there does seem to be this kind of break between something that's numerate like inventory mm. control and something that has to do with humans mm. and you just got to remember humans are messy little buggers <laughs> yeah and, you know, you think you've got a grip of someone and then they do something you've never expected before. Um, and again, think back to activity theory. The reason they may have changed is another mediation has occurred. Something else has influenced them in another direction that you may know nothing about. It's a complex and messy environment. Whereas in something like inventory management, there's a few variables that you're trying mm. to get a grip of. It's much more simplified. And they seem to work. But they don't always. Economic mm. order quantity. Um, I'm sure I taught you that in your first year at university, mm. about economic order quantity. And people apply it in all kinds of situations. Whereas economic order quantity basically says it only works in stable environments where you've got steady um, demand. As mm. soon as you move out of a steady, predictable demand, economic order quantity doesn't work at all and it's just not applicable. And I have seen companies try to apply economic order quantity and go, this theory doesn't work. Well, it does if you apply it in the right bloody place. Yeah. In a right, under the right sort of circumstances. Something like inventory management, it's easier to see that. Yeah. Something like leadership, where you're dealing with the complexities of human motivations, I think it's much more difficult. Much, much more difficult. But it doesn't mean it's meaningless. Right, it's just more... It's more the aspect of putting more effort in and trying to understand it and apply it more variantly rather than just shaking a stick in it and expecting it to work. 
Good way of helping yeah. them. Shaking a stick at them. <laughs> to get them to work. Doesn't get students to work, I'm telling you. <laughs> so, in your aspect, if you could have one way, what would you, if you could change, have a go at it, of trying to reduce the conflict between theoretical and practical for university students, what would be a way that you would try and do it? I'm not sure I want to reduce the conflict. I'm not sure, one, you can. Um, and two, it is the conflict between the two that actually allows us to come up with new ideas about doing things. There's another thing um, in activity theory which is quite important. And it's, it's about addressing the learning paradox. That is, how do simple systems create systems more complex than themselves? Yeah? So in essence, how do we as humans go from the plains of Africa mm. in hunter-gatherer sort of um, tribes, clans, groupings, um, and produce the world we're in today? <laughs> yeah? Sort of the internet, the planes in the sky, that, that's just stunning when yeah. you think about it. Yeah? When, um, you know, our main sort of tools were sticks in our hands, and all of a sudden... We've got um, aircraft flying in the sky and staying in the sky most of the time. That's quite stunning. How does a simple system, such as human um, hunter-gatherer societies, become complex, globalised capitalism? And the way in which sort of activity theory tries to um, sort of answer this learning paradox is to understand the interplay between something called internalization and externalization. Mm -hmm. So internalization is when you've got those mediators affecting mm -hmm. it. So, so you, you, you're reading a, a paper about a particular theory or somebody's telling you about something or you're witnessing something going on. So you've got those mediations going on. It's that voice in your head. You remember when you were sort of writing an essay, you wouldn't just go, you'd be doing it in your head or you might be doing a, a presentation and you'd be researched. That, that kind of sort of um, space in your head where you're visualising what may occur. You know, you're going to split up with your girlfriend, so you're re rehearsing the conversation that's going to be had. <laughs> so you're going to split up with your girlfriend, so you're yeah. rehearsing that conversation. You'll say this and you'll see, you'll say that. If anyone's ever had a, an argument with... Well, just your girlfriend or anyone, you try to rehearse the argument and it never goes like that at all. But we do it. It's that process of internalisation, that making sense of stuff, and we do it all the time, okay? And once we make sense of something, we then act on the basis mm -hmm. of that understanding, that sense-making process. So we externalise, yeah? And that externalisation can be our behaviours, we can write an essay, we can write a report for business, an email, whatever, but we externalise, mm -hmm. okay? And in externalising, other people are seeing that, and they're then internalising, mm. yeah? But when we internalise, we don't internalise perfectly. So I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed if I deliver a lecture, then a student comes up to me to ask some questions and said, you said this, and I'm sitting there going, I never said that. <laughs> I don't want to be saying that. And that's their internalisation process going on and being imperfect. And that imperfect can be seen as a bad thing, yeah? Mm. Um, whereas for me, it just is. It's just humans don't hear perfectly. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they've got other things going in their head. They're not always listening to the lecture at the front. They're not always listening to what the boss is telling them, or they don't make notes of it, or their notes are imperfect, and so they're filling gaps in in many ways. The brain's such a con 
busy place that's going on you're trying to focus on something and then you're like oh what, what am I having for tea tonight <laughs> you come back and then your phone's pinging away at you the distractions are hundreds in this complex society yeah. of ours so but that imperfect place also means we can have leaps of mm. intuition so we see it differently to what we heard and then we externalise and all of a sudden we're starting down a new path that could be highly fruitful could be highly towards making a change yeah it's like a mutation in genetics mm. okay um, lots of those imperfections go nowhere mm. end up with nothing but very often they can lead to very new different ways of thinking about things so that kind of dance of internalization externalization in a, a society like ours with complex tools such as language that's how you begin to answer that learning paradox. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't remember what we were asking. The question. Okay, we went on a mad little tangent, didn't we? But, but that to me is um, kind of what we're doing as a species. And education is an intentional attempt to do all of that. Fantastic. That was been a really great chat. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Um, but finally, just this can be within to anything if you can give an advice if you give advice about one thing what would it be could be to students could be to fellow phd thing just anything that you think you'd give advice to the biggest advice is be curious why probably the most important question why just be curious that's it about anything and everything right simple it's a great bit of advice thank you very much simon pleasure thank you harris thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show Feel free to subscribe and share and give the show a five-star rating on all the podcast apps. Thank you.